this week. Toys R Us receives Central European sale approval. iHeart seeks approval of dip financing. And EP Energy continues its balance sheet fix. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Stephen Opper. And I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, legal analyst Teresa Lee sits down with managing partner Albert Togut and counsel Charles Persons of the bankruptcy boutique law firm Togut, Siegel & Siegel to discuss the rising costs of Chapter 11, the impact of activist hedge funds, and why Al Togut considers the bankruptcy code to be, quote, severely out of balance and tilted in favor of creditors. It's Sunday, May 20th. It was a busy week again for Toys R Us, beginning with a hearing on Tuesday, at which the debtors received approval for their almost $100 million sale of their Central European assets to Smith's Toys. Also at the hearing, the debtors received interim approval of the Transition Services Agreement that allows for Toys Delaware to continue providing corporate services and information technology support to non-U.S. entities for 60 days. Then, on Wednesday, the debtors sought approval to enter into a new revised license agreement with Smith's. That revised agreement covers a 10-month period during which the new owner will transition away from the Toys R Us brand. This week's developments follow a motion filed by the Toys debtors last Friday, seeking approval of bidding procedures for the sale or exclusive licensing of rights, title, and interest in and to certain U.S. intellectual property assets. According to the motion, the IP portfolio includes, quote, the Toys R Us trade name, trademarks, service marks, mascot, a substantial private label business, various registered domain names, an e-commerce platform, a baby registry, and customer and email marketing lists. At the hearing this Tuesday, Chad Husnick of Kirkland & Ellis, the debtor's counsel, also provided updates on other sale processes and recoveries. He noted that the debtors had used sale proceeds to completely pay off their ABL facility and were working to pay down the Philo loan. Quote, if all goes according to plan, we will have paid off the entire ABL and Philo a month ahead of the current budget. The debtors are also reviewing second round bids submitted by the May 14th deadline, according to Husnick. iHeartMedia was active in both its main Chapter 11 cases as well as its Legacy Notes adversary proceeding this week. The debtors received objections on Wednesday from both the UCC and the Term Loan and PGN Group to the proposed retention of Molus as financial advisor and Liontree as special financial advisor. The UCC said in its objection that two advisors could collectively receive fees, quote, approaching $90 million, including fees for potentially duplicative services, end quote. The debtors sought to retain Liontree to render, quote, professional services solely in connection with a potential equity investment in the radio business of the debtors by any third party, end quote. According to the retention application, which was filed in early May, Lion Tree began working with the debtors, senior management, and other stakeholders in the fall of 2017. The work included exploring a potential equity investment initially by Liberty Media Corp and its affiliates, and subsequently by another interested party whose identity is not disclosed. Meanwhile, in the iHeart Legacy Notes adversary proceeding, the debtors, the senior creditor group, and the Legacy Notes successor and denture trustee submitted supplemental briefing on Tuesday in response to questions raised at a May 7th hearing on motions to dismiss. 
The next day, the debtors and certain holders of priority guarantee notes filed an executed stipulation stating that the parties, quote, agree that they will not assert this, that the springing lien trigger date has occurred, end quote, solely for the purposes of confirmation of a plan in alignment with the RSA and only effective upon the entry of an order either dismissing or abating the adversary proceedings as moot. On Thursday, the iHeart debtors then filed a motion seeking approval of $450 million in dip financing, with proceeds going to repay the pre-petition ABL. The financing also contemplates the ability to convert to an exit facility at emergence. The debtors say they believe that the proposed dip, quote, strikes an appropriate balance enabling the debtors' estates to obtain the economic benefits associated with the refinancing of the ABL indebtedness without prejudicing any rights that any party in interest may have under the cash collateral order with respect to the ABL secured parties, end quote. AP Energy, the Eagleford and Permian-focused E&P owned by Apollo, announced a new $1 billion secured note, which would rank senior to the company's existing secured notes, but junior to the company's RBL facility. EP also announced a two-year extension of the RBL to 2021, albeit at a reduced commitment level. The new secured note would mature in 2026. EP is no stranger to the high-yield market, as earlier in the year the company exchanged about a billion of unsecured notes that matured between 2020 and 2023, into new secured notes maturing in 2024. Following this week's transactions, EP's next major maturity will be 2020. The company has recently shifted spending to enable the company to build out production in its Eagleford assets. The shifts include agreeing to move the second phase of its development agreement with Apollo to the Eagleford. However, on a recent earnings call, management said it could shift spending back to the Midland Basin later in the year. The 5.5 times leveraged company said that its long-term goal remains to reduce leverage to sub-3 times. However, in a presentation to lenders announcing the new secured note, EP disclosed that revolver borrowings have increased to $940 million, up from $775 million at quarter end. On the island of Puerto Rico, holders of the island's general obligation bonds on Monday announced that a constituency representing holders and issuers of GO and COFINA bonds has agreed on a framework for a comprehensive settlement of the Commonwealth COFINA dispute. The proposed settlement is based on the retention of 5.5% of sales and use tax by a newly formed securitization trust. The settlement contemplates a total distributable value of just over $23 billion to address $37.6 billion of claims as of July 1st. The COFINA Senior Bondholders Coalition issued a press release addressing its involvement in the negotiations and disclosing the terms of an April 12th proposal made by the coalition to the Commonwealth agent and the official retiree committee. That proposal provides for 73% recovery on COFINA claims from a total of about $19.7 billion of distributable value. PROMISA and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AAFAF, said in separate press releases that they will reject the proposed economic terms of the GO-COFINA creditor proposal. The board said that the proposed framework does not align with the new fiscal plan certified on April 19th and AAFAF said that the terms are not sustainable. Bettina White, as COFINA agent, stated that it was inaccurate and erroneous for the GO ad hoc group to state that the COFINA agent supported the allocation of pledged sales tax in the proposed settlement. According to White, she neither endorsed nor rejected the proposed settlement. 
It was also disclosed that the proposed settlement framework was not supported by the official committee of unsecured creditors as the Commonwealth agent in dispute. AFSCME, the union representing government employees, said negotiations around the proposal may have violated the stipulation governing procedures related to the Commonwealth COFINA dispute. However, local bondholder group Bonistas del Patio called the settlement framework a, quote, extremely positive development, end quote. On Wednesday, Governor Ricardo Rosselló met with Promisa Oversight Board Chairman Jose Carrion and said he would travel to New York to meet other board members in an effort to resolve an impasse between the government and the board. The impasse, mainly around pension and labor reform, relates to the proposed fiscal year 2019 budget and the Commonwealth's certified fiscal plan. Rosselló called the talks, quote, positive and moving in the right direction, end quote, but declined to comment on specifics. Meanwhile, Puerto Rico's Treasury Department reported net revenue to the general fund in April beat its projections by about $220 million, reaching a record $1.4 billion for the month. The more-than-expected revenue will help close a gap between collections and estimates in the final quarter of fiscal 2018, according to the Treasury. Other top-read stories of the week were, number one, another story from our new reorg litigation team, DEA seeks 10-day extension to June 4th to provide material opioid manufacturing distribution data to plaintiffs. Number two, Enduro Resource Partners files Chapter 11. Number three, Rex Energy lacks sufficient liquidity to make interest payment. Company prepares for imminent Chapter 11 filing. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Karen, and welcome, Stephen, the team that every week delivers the world's finest podcast on the subject of reorganizations, distressed debt, and high-yield debt. In the words of Lynn Tilton, when leaders and employees share a common vision, we can stand shoulder to shoulder to build success. She's absolutely correct, of course. And that provides a nice segue into this week's activity, as on Monday, May 21st, there's a settlement hearing in the Zohar matter. Also on Monday, the expiration of Rite Aid's tender for its 2021 and 2023 notes, and a hearing in Puerto Rico related to the discovery of material related to the fiscal plan development. Tuesday, May 22nd, the first day hearing for Rex Energy, the Marcellus producer. Rex is looking to sell its assets, most of which are in Butler County, Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh. Range Resources and XTO are also there, in Butler County, I mean. In western PA, um, by the way, most of the wells are south of Pittsburgh, more in Washington and Greene counties. That's just to keep in the back of your minds. And there is also a combined plan DS hearing for Harvey Gulf. Sort of wish Shane Guidry, Harvey Gulf CEO and former Chief of Reserves in the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office in Louisiana, would set up a Twitter. I'm sure it would be a fertile spring of interesting observations that I could then share with you all here. Also on Tuesday, a status hearing for Ecobat and a DS hearing for Synvio. And now for some trivia. What do Johnny Winter of Beaumont, Texas, Dwayne Allman of Macon, Georgia, Alan Collins of Jacksonville, Florida, he played lead on Skinner's Freebird, by the way, and Billy Gibbons of Houston all have in common. Yes, that's right, they all played Gibson guitars. And on Wednesday, May 23rd, there is a second day hearing for Gibson Brands. There is also a combined plan DS hearing for Vinoco. And if that's not enough, it's get to the choppa time with first quarter earnings from Bristow Group. 
Bristow's earnings call is on Thursday, May 24th, which also brings omnibus hearings for Toys R Us and VER Technologies and a UCC formation meeting for Enduro. And Friday, May 25th, the Friday before Memorial Day, traditionally a day of tossing the Nerf football around the bond desk of Wall Street, there is a GUC Trust Settlement Conference in General Motors, and in Toys R Us, the start of the stalking horse selection period for the Toys Delaware real estate asset sale. That's all from me. Back to y'all, and enjoy the week. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now, we'll turn it over to legal analyst Teresa Lee and her interview with Albert Togut and counsel Charles Persons of the bankruptcy boutique law firm Togut, Siegel, and Siegel. All right, so here with me today are Al Togut and Charles Persons of the bankruptcy boutique law firm Togut, Siegel, and Siegel. For the past 45 years, Albert Togut has specialized in bankruptcy law to the exclusion of all other areas of practice. In 1980, he formed the firm of Togut, Siegel, and Siegel, which, as I mentioned, is a bankruptcy boutique. The firm has served as court-authorized counsel to the debtor or official committee in some of the largest and most high-profile Chapter 11 cases, including Westinghouse, Pacific Drilling, Sun Edison, American Airlines, Kodak, Aeropostale, General Motors, Chrysler Automotive, Dewey and LaBeouf, and Relativity Media. Al Tuggett was lead counsel to Rockefeller Center Properties and Olympia New York Tower B Company, better known as the World Financial Center, which involved a restructuring of the 43-story commercial office building located at 2 World Financial Center at Battery Park in Manhattan. Mr. Togut is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, a fellow of the International Insolvency Institute, co-chair of the Commission of the American Bankruptcy Institute that studied the reform of Chapter 11, and past officer and ABI director and chair of its New York City program. Mr. Togut also served on the ABI's Fee Study Commission that studied professional fees in Chapter 11 business bankruptcy cases. He has written and lectured on many topics under the former Bankruptcy Act and current Bankruptcy Code. He was named as a New York Super Lawyer for 2007 through 2017 and named in the top 100 lawyers in New York and has been repeatedly chosen as a leading lawyer by Chambers USA. Charles Persons recently joined Mr. Togut's firm as counsel after more than a decade representing debtors and creditors in complex corporate reorganizations. Over the course of his career, Mr. Persons has represented numerous high-profile debtors both in and out of court including in the Chapter 11 cases of Westinghouse, American Airlines, Chrysler, Blockbuster, Sem Group Holdings, Texas Rangers Baseball Partners, the Dallas Stars, and Azura Midstream Partners. He's also represented creditor groups in various distress situations, including secured lender groups in Energy and Exploration Partners and Magnum Hunter Resources, as well as the Unsecured Creditors Committee in Sun Edison. In addition, Mr. Persons has considerable experience advising clients on debtor-in-possession financing issues and has published several articles discussing the intersection of oil and gas law and restructuring law. So, Charles and Al, it's great to have you with me here today. Uh, we're here to talk about the rising costs of Chapter 11 and bankruptcy administration. And Al, I know that, as I discussed, you have special expertise in that. Um, so I'm going to start with a question that's been on the forefront of many minds in the bankruptcy world, um, which is brick-and-mortar retailers. And in many of the cases that we're seeing lately, uh, creditors and stakeholders have raised concerns that the debtors may be in danger of being or becoming administratively insolvent. 
For example, Toys R Us was forced to toggle from a reorganization to a liquidation process, in part because the debtors couldn't sustain the cost of Chapter 11 after their dismal 2017 holiday results. So are Chapter 11 cases becoming more expensive to administer, and what are the causes of these rising costs? Well, um, the costs of, of the case, the professional costs of the case, uh, are not the cause of the case collapsing. Uh, the first time that uh, the legal fee question popped up was in the Enron case, where my firm was co-counsel with Wa Gotchel, uh, and the fees were enormous. And um, uh, we did a study to see what Enron's historical legal fees were before the filing and compare it with after the filing and they were virtually the same. It's just the size and complexity of, of the debtor. In these re retail cases, what uh, really causes the, the case to tip into liquidation is the fact that these companies are uh, in trouble before they file. And that has nothing to do with the reorganization costs. Uh, all these retail chains are uh, competing against online retailers that do not have, as the brick-and-mortar companies do, uh, any employee costs of significance, no rent costs, no all kinds of costs that are connected with brick-and-mortar uh, and that online retailers don't have. And on top of that, the, the shopping experience is pretty lousy. I mean, you walk into any of these big chain stores and you can search for an hour trying to find somebody to help you. Uh, people are more inclined to just sit at home and read descriptions online. It, it's, it's a lot easier. Uh, so I would submit that it's not the legal expenses that cause the company to go uh, into liquidation. It's the fact that the company's business model is flawed. I think to add on to that, you know, one of the most important, really the most important part of that question is is noting the dismal 2017 holiday results. That has nothing to do with the company being in restructuring or not in restructuring. If you can't meet your dip budget, if you're unable to make the sales, make the revenue really happen, frankly, whether you're in in an expensive Chapter 11 process or a, an inexpensive Chapter 11 process, you're probably in trouble. Um, we saw something similar when I was working on the Blockbuster case. Everyone went into the holiday season hoping that holiday sales in that year would basically bring the company sort of back, uh, that we would be able to restructure around that possibility. What ended up happening was, similar to Toys R Us, a poor holiday season. You didn't end up with enough revenue, and the, the company had to take a different direction on its on its plan and how eventually it, uh, it did reorganize. So, Al, you're saying that professional fees really have nothing to do with why debtors are flipping into liquidation, and you think it has to do more with the company's existing business model? Well, it's uh, the, the, most often when you see administration administrative insolvency, uh, it's because there aren't free assets to pay the fees. <clears throat> Companies that are filed today are levered completely. Uh, and so uh, if the company's not generating a profit while it's in a proceeding, it simply doesn't have enough cash to satisfy the fees. And that's what creates the administrative insolvency, not the amount of the fees. A, a filing typically is very challenging to a company. 
Um, there were instances in Toys R Us where they were having enormous difficulty getting enough merchandise. Uh, you have to make a certain level of sales in your store to cover expenses and, and generate a profit. If you can't get the merchandise, you can never hit that sales number, uh, and then you're operating at a loss. So it's not, it, it's not the professional fees that cause the problem, it's that the business isn't, it isn't surviving. So now in Chapter 11, are you seeing special situations uh, in the recent last few years that are causing the cases to become more expensive? The answer is clearly yes. Um, uh, One of the things you mentioned in the introduction is that I uh, co-chaired a Blue Ribbon Commission that studied Chapter 11 and Chapter 11 reform. Uh, with truly the best and brightest minds, bankruptcy minds from around the country. Uh, And one thing that we were able to see from all of our work is that Chapter 11 works best when it's consensual. The statute was actually designed for that. Uh, And what causes uh, the cases to spiral out of control is people taking adverse positions to each other who are determined to litigate to the death rather than sitting down and trying to find a, um, a consensual resolution. Once that litigation begins, it can spin completely out of control. It can be all-consuming. I think the poster child for this was the Caesar case, uh, where um, uh, the, the cost just went through the roof. And that was a product of a, a lack of agreement about things. So that's the biggest driver for, for fees. You see any kind of case where everybody's fighting with everybody and you know that's going to be an expensive case. And, and I think it's pretty well established at this point that a, a prepackaged case is sort of the preferred way that a lot of people are, are taking in companies to, be, to know, have, have an idea of how exactly how things are going to play out. Getting into a prepackaged case very frequently means the fighting and the infighting, whatnot, got finished ahead of time. You end up with everybody walking in kumbaya. You can get things done quickly, and you can keep fees down that way. It's when you don't have the ability, and it doesn't have to come through a prepack, but it's when you don't have that ability, as Al was saying, to get everybody on the same page that you really end up in a situation where cases drag and fees rise, and you know you're just watching sort of the spiral building. And on that score, my, my personal favorite uh, are those cases where people come into court on the first day and they say, Your Honor, it's not quite a prepack. It's prearranged, but we're essentially there. And then the case blows up <laughs> and, uh, and takes forever to get done. And the, and the expenses go through the roof. So one thing, so you mentioned Caesars. One thing that we saw there was was really the involvement of a lot of activist hedge funds, a lot of um, litigious players. Can you talk a little bit about what, in your experience, you've come to expect when you see those types of names involved in these cases and um, how how you think about their involvement? Yeah, um, the, the, um, when I started practicing, so we're going back a ways, Um, The typical creditor in a case was um, unsecured. Uh, The only secured debt you typically saw was if a bank financed some accounts receivable. 
and beyond that, the capital structure was basically unsecured. And creditors in those days didn't trade their, their claims out, uh, but they rode through the restructuring. And they had a real interest in the company succeeding for two reasons. One is they'd get more on their claim, but beyond that, they held on to their customer. Nowadays, at the drop of a hat, creditors are selling their claims, and these funds are buying them. Uh, the funds don't have the same interest in the debtor's long-term survival. And what they oftentimes care about is a quick return. Uh, and so in those instances, you can have the funds with a different agenda from the company. Uh, and it creates a lot of, uh, a, lot of um, uh, a lot of friction and fighting. Uh, and very often these cases result in liquidations because you can get a return much faster that way. Uh, and the funds care about what their return will be. So uh, uh, the, the very nature of how restructuring set up now is totally different than what it used to be and not better. So would you say that it is in part because the debt is more widely held or is there an issue with uh, capital structures actually getting more complicated? Well, it's both. Uh, capital structures are hugely complicated now and as I mentioned before, usually fully, fully uh, secured, uh, which gives very little wiggle room to a company trying to restructure. Uh, and the debt uh, can, can be held in various uh, places. It could be concentrated in a fund or it could be spread out over a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, and it can oftentimes be concentrated in two or three funds and they have different agendas or uh, sometimes different egos about who's going to come out on top. Uh, that creates a lot of drama in a case that we never used to have to deal with. You see these ad hoc groups, and, and you know sometimes there's a collective front. Obviously, you have your restructuring lawyer sort of speaking out front for the whole group. But if you look you know, under the covers and kind of what's going on behind, you frequently got different funds that can some can only hold debt, some can hold debt and equity. So what they want out of recovery changes. Some of them might have bought, in, bought into the notes at you know, a certain discount where another group bought in you know, much closer to and those complexities cause those groups to sort of, I think, lead themselves towards the lowest common denominator. And sometimes that is a, a litigious, you know, ends up with that group being a little more litigious than they perhaps would have been if you had less syndication, less, you know, uh, splitting of the, the various tranches of money. Right. And, and two things about that. When, when you talk about the lowest common denominator, that usually means no. Mm -hmm. Getting to yes is so much harder. Uh, and the other thing that's, that uh, is not constructive is the bankruptcy code requires the appointment of an unsecured creditors committee, but the unsecured creditors typically are out of the money. So instead of being able to work with an unsecured creditors committee that is being constructive and helping the reorganization, the unsecured creditors committee is making a lot of noise trying to hold up a deal for the senior secured creditors because they're trying to hold up the deal so that they get some kind of return where otherwise they wouldn't. And that, too, uh, adds to the acrimony in a case. So, so we're talking about litigation, and obviously there's a lot of different 
fights that can be litigated within Chapter 11. Um, a lot of times we have, obviously, around the disclosure statement and the plan, but also a lot of times around exclusivity extensions. And then often, of course, we have significant um, post-petition litigation trusts or liquidation trusts that are litigating claims against um, you know, pre-petition creditors or directors and officers. Can you talk about which uh, ones of those that you find in your experience are the most expensive to fight and how they can affect the timing and percentage of creditor recoveries? Well, I think I think the better way to look at that is which is a fight that that adds to a creditor recovery and which is a fight that's just a fight for itself. Uh, the fight about exclusivity adds no value whatsoever to the estate. It just tries to pressure the debtor to do something fast, to capitulate to, to uh, creditor demands, uh, but it doesn't add value. A liquidating trust adds value. So uh, if the trust is run properly, uh, the recoveries that are obtained will greatly exceed the fees. In a, in a fight about exclusivity, all those fees are just going into a hole in the ground. They're not adding anything. And, and frequently, in, with something like exclusivity, there's not even necessarily a great chance that the the group trying to cancel exclusivity really thinks they're going to win. Um, depending, obviously, on the case. But what you're what you're at is a place where they're, as Al's saying, trying to just put pressure on the debtor, trying to basically control a case. And if you're if you're just sort of I call it firebombing, basically, just kind of throwing everything you can at the wall to see what sticks. You end up basically getting to, to higher fees, not just debtor fees, obviously, but now with secured creditors situations, frequently the debtors are picking up the costs of all of those creditors' uh, counsel as well. So it's all coming out of uh, now of a bigger pot. And basically, are you just doing it just to be a pain, or are you doing it for real, you know, real value for yourself and for the other creditors that you sort of represent or are peri passu with? Yeah, Charles makes a very good point about that. The debtor's paying the freight for everybody to fight with the debtor, so right. so um, it, 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 it there's no inhibiting factor on these creditor aggressive actions because the debtor's paying for it, mm -hmm. and the debtor isn't going to capitulate to capitulate uh, to save the fees because to capitulate often means death. I mean uh, liquidation. Um, uh, loss of control of the company, the things that the creditors are demanding. And the bankruptcy code is set up to have debtors be debtors in possession, to get themselves to a new lease on life. And losing exclusivity or losing those sorts of fights aren't fights that you can really lose unless you're just willing to, as Al say, kind of roll over, play dead, and just see what, what happens. It's not what the bankruptcy code was built for, and it's not its original intention. Right. It's also not good for the, the economy, actually. Uh, because um, uh, one of the things that made this makes this country so um, uh, prosperous is the vibrancy of our economy, and that's driven in no small measure by by entrepreneurialism, people going out and starting companies. It's not uncommon when that occurs that there might be a hiccup, and so the company needs rehabilitation in the true sense of the word, and files for Chapter 11. Uh, in a sincere effort to restructure. Um, if that, that door is closed and all these businesses get liquidated, 
Uh, there's no incentive for other people to try to to start businesses, and it actually hurts the overall economy. So now, when we talk about litigation costs, I know in some of the mega cases, um, you know, the EFHs, the Caesars, um, a lot of times with heavy litigation, the professional fees can be upwards of four or five million dollars a month. Um, Al, do you, I know that you studied this extensively, but what were the recommendations that you and the ABI Commission came to in terms of uh, actually remedying those costs of Chapter 11, especially for smaller businesses? Okay, well, um, the qualifier at the end, what you said, Teresa, is, is uh, interesting because if you look at the landscape of Chapter 11, uh, you'll see that more than 90% of the filings are for small businesses. So while we sit here talking about marquee cases that are in the headlines, uh, the meat and potatoes of the restructuring uh, uh, field and the bankruptcy courts deals with small companies. Uh, we, we learned from our, our study that small companies were actually trying to avoid Chapter 11 uh, not so much because of the cost, although that was certainly an important factor, but because the modern-day bankruptcy case usually uh, results in a loss of control. And the entrepreneur who poured his heart and soul into starting a company doesn't want to put it in play by filing and, and lose it. Uh, my commission uh, made specific recommendations about small businesses that would have allowed, that would allow, if the Congress will get around to considering it, uh, the business formers, who, who are the majority shareholders, to hold on to the business, uh, for quick cases, for the elimination of creditors' committees, uh, and for dramatically lower costs. And so I want to talk about BEPSIPA for a second. This was the last major bankruptcy reform act. We were talking about brick and mortar retailers. This act dramatically changed the uh, landlord tenant dynamic if the tenant was a Chapter 11 debtor. And it, what happened was that it set a deadline for these debtors to assume or reject leases of non residential real estate. And this deadline has been cited by a lot of our brick and mortar retailers that we're seeing as the cause for. Uh, toggling to liquidation because they simply don't have enough time to decide which leases they want. So in looking at any sort of new Bankruptcy Reform Act, what are the factors that we need to consider in balancing debtor and creditor interests? Okay, so let me just say, and then and then Charles will uh, add his views too, um, you have to recognize that the bankruptcy laws, when they, were f when they first came in, were totally balanced. Uh, creditor and debtor interests were 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 both measured, uh, and the one goal that the the statute had more than any other was to facilitate restructurings. BAPSIPA was the last of a series of amendments to the bankruptcy code uh, that was obtained from intense lobbying by creditors, and if you think about it, no debtor. Right, GM, Chrysler, uh, Westinghouse, none of those debtors are going to raise their hands while Congress is considering something that's being pushed by, by a creditor lobby and say, hello, you should know that we're in trouble and we're thinking of filing for Chapter 11 and this legislation would be terrible for us. So uh, these amendments came in without any opposition at all. And the bankruptcy code is severely out of balance now. 
uh, tilted in favor of creditors. Um, uh, BAPSIPA is generally viewed as a terrible piece of legislation. Uh, you're, you're completely correct that it, it caused the liquidation of a number of, of uh, retail chains. Uh, but I can tell you, too, that we were co-counsel in Aeropostel, which was the first of these chains that went to the landlords and said, you know, you have all these rights under the BAPSIPA amendments, but forget them. Forget them and work with us, and let's extend out the dates by which uh, we have to make a decision about uh, assuming or rejecting your lease, uh, and let's save the chain, and we did. So, uh, and, and a general rule about that is the landlords, uh, and Charles will really talk about this, you know, you have shopping centers and you start losing anchor tenants and then the whole shopping center is in trouble. Uh, so it's actually in the landlord's interest not to have these important tenants disappear. Uh, and I suggest to you, regardless of what the legislation says and what the statute says, uh, you're going to increasingly see an Aeropostel approach uh, where landlords back off of their rights to help facilitate the, the restructuring. Yeah, I completely agree with Al. I mean, I think it's you take a, a huge case with a like a Toys R Us, like a Blockbuster, one of these cases with tens of thousands of stores, um, and putting together the kind of business plan that allows a company to strategically reemerge as a as a better better capital structure, getting rid of the bad stores, um, you know, refining their footprint. That takes time. Um, certainly, obviously, everyone is working as much as they can pre-petition, but at some point, you, you end up in a situation where you have to file and the clock starts ticking. You've got spreadsheets and pages and pages and pages and specialists who are doing nothing but trying to figure out how to cut this store or that store. Can we get this lease down? These are complex negotiations, and there's tens and tens of thousands of them. Um, it's really, really difficult to get all of that done in sort of the time frame that is now allowed. And, and yes, to some extent, I, I think it's absolutely right. People are throwing their hands up and saying, look, we can't come up with the right footprint in this amount of time. We can't figure out, we can't negotiate all our leases. Um, and so now we're, we're just stuck without being able to, to figure this situation out. And it's, it really has, I think, impacted a lot of these the brick-and-mortar cases. But let me qualify all of this by saying that, that uh, very often you find debtors that find their way to the bankruptcy court uh, and are there completely on merit. They got bad management. They got a bad business plan. They got a bad product. They got a bad marketing strategy. And they're there because they belong to be there. Uh, and in those instances, very often, uh, liquidation's the right answer. Interesting. So as I mentioned a little while ago, Togut is a boutique bankruptcy firm, and I know that you have a somewhat unique approach uh, to these chapter 11. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, uh, we are actually, um, I've looked, the oldest boutique in the country. Now, the reason for that isn't that um, this is the third generation of the Togut firm. It's, it's the fact that uh, the other boutiques um, no longer exist because they couldn't figure out how to, how to function in this, in this environment. The bankruptcy practice today is dominated by large firms, while Gottschall, Skadden Arps, Kirkland and Ellis, those kind of firms, Jones Day. Uh, and the fir those firms take a, a uh, corporate approach 
to restructuring. Uh, and they treat Chapter 11 debtors the same as they would treat any other corporate client. And sometimes uh, the result of that, oftentimes actually the result of that, is uh, that there'll be higher fees. It's simply a different philosophy about how to, how to approach a corporate case. We approach it strictly as a restructuring, and everything we do uh, is proportionate to the size of the problem we're dealing with. Uh, and everything we do is designed to try to get to a consensus rather than a litigated solution. Uh, and we use smaller teams of lawyers. Uh, we actively encourage parties to settle, uh, telling them the litigation costs are going to diminish your recovery, so, so let's just try to get this done. Uh, and we, we always point out to creditors that we're engaging with uh, the size of their problem compared with the size of what, what the cost could be if we go to a litigated solution. And we've had an, a, a just an outsized uh, success in getting people to consensus with the overall result that uh, the fees are dramatically less than uh, the approach taken by these large corporate firms. So with a consensual negotiated solution, one of the things that uh, the Supreme Court recently ruled on was the Javik case where uh, the Supreme Court told the debtors to go back to the drawing board because their negotiated settlement um, didn't follow the absolute priority rules set out in the bankruptcy code. And that is sometimes a risk that we take with 9019s, uh, even though it does decrease the risk of all these litigation costs. So uh, what is what is your thought about those sorts of negotiated settlements that don't necessarily strictly follow the rules in the bankruptcy code? I'm in favor of them. Um, uh, they can take many, many different forms. Uh, but a 9019 means that people are agreeing to a resolution. And if you view a restructuring within the four corners of, uh, of the case, uh, and, and the majority of the people involved in the case are agreeing to a solution that, for example, gives general unsecured creditors who may be out of the money some sort of distribution, uh, and that buys world peace in the case, uh, so you can end it quickly, and you don't incur all these expenses in litigating to the death. I think that's a, a, uh, a good result, and frankly, the best result, because as I said earlier, uh, Chapter 11 was designed to work best when it's consensual. Just the last question that I want to close on here is you, you mentioned getting all the creditors to come to the table, even though the unsecureds are probably out of the money and we have a lot of these litigious hedge funds, especially now that sometimes the debt is so widely held. What are your thoughts and experiences with getting all of these parties to the table and getting them to work together constructively? I think there's look, there's a lot of powerful tools within the bankruptcy code to get people to come to the same place. Um, you know, we have we have mediation. We have um, you know, simply sometimes simply just standing around in the courtroom and having an hour to, to talk in the hallways will get you will get you a long part of the way. So, I think that it's important really that those people explore and use those tools. Uh, in different cases, because to Al's point, there's really almost without without question in any kind of complex Chapter 11, things are absolutely better if everyone has come to the same place, has come to a consensus. That takes some time. It might take mediation. It might take 
you know, something along those lines, forcing people to get in the same room. But no matter what you do, every time you get people in the same room, you end up with a much better result, at least in my experience. Yeah, well, sometimes you, I mean, that's certainly true, but sometimes you get everybody in the same room uh, and they each bring pies and start throwing them at each other. <laughs> and that's not terribly constructive. Um, uh, the, the mediation is, we're, we're using it now in one of our cases where we just couldn't reconcile the interests of major creditor, creditor groups. Uh, and we were looking at months and months and months of litigation uh, and, versus trying to get to a negotiated solution. Uh, the key there is who is the mediator. Uh, very much in vogue these days is for uh, a judge to use another sitting judge. And simply because they're a judge doesn't mean that they're a talented mediator. And I say this from the, the perspective of being a mediator. Um, uh, they're not all equal. And uh, very often mediations don't succeed. But for sure, trying to get everybody on the same page is, is the optimal uh, outcome. Um, and, so, and sometimes you have to do it by talking to different groups separately because they actually hate each other. <laughs> and putting them in the same room doesn't work real well. Thank you all for joining me. And thank you, Charles. Um, this has been a great conversation. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will find it very helpful. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.